Let me ask you a question and be honest. Oh! Do I make you horny? Randy? Do I make you horny, baby? Yeah, do I? Come on, I hope this is part of the unfreezing process. Never have sex with you, ever. If you were the last man on earth and I was the last woman on earth, and the future of the human race depends on our having sex simply for procreation, I still would not have sex with you. What's your point, Vanessa? Hello, listening people. Hello, baby. I knew you were going to do it. I wanted to give you the ability to do it first. Hello, baby boy Bartek. How are you? Good, Ryan, baby. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing shagadelic, Bartek. I'm, I'm doing really well. <laughs> we're spin Polish, likely because we're always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. That is why the show is named that. We are a podcast in which we talk about movies. This is our show, Pictures Pow Wow, in which we talk about movies that have come recommended, and I recommended the movie of discussion for this one. It's so. Ooh, baby, yeah. Uh, we are talking about the first Austin Powers. Austin Powers, international man of mystery. Uh, Bartek, could you please make sure to let everyone know about if they have or have not seen this movie, what the they should do? If you have not seen this movie, please be aware that we are going to be talking about it in depth, spoilers and all. Um, and probably maybe even linking to the future films. So uh, we might have minor spoilers for them as well. Who knows? Depends how the discussion goes. Yes, and uh, we should clarify, at the end of the last episode, we both agreed that we would watch the international cut, or as we called it, the Rob Lowe cut, but Bartek couldn't be bothered to do that. So our discussion will be about both cuts of the movie, and we can talk about the fact that there are different cuts of this movie, and why that is, and like just just what a bizarre series of events uh, that people may not even be aware of when it comes to Austin Powers. But first off, Marta, could you please explain to us what your history and relationship with this film is? So I know that the first time I ever noticed that Austin Powers existed was when um, my brother, my dad, and I went to um, a blockbuster to borrow something. I think we were looking for a Harry Potter film, and we were, you know, searching around the aisles, like, where is it, where is it, where is it? And my brother, because he was so young, um, he was just looking for anything that, like, slightly resembled Austin, uh, sorry, Harry Potter, and he pointed at something, like, oh, look, there it is. And my dad and I looked, and he was pointing at Austin Powers' gold member. Because I assume he looked at, like, oh, guy with glasses, that must be it. I'm like, no, no, that's not it. Um, and then a few years later, um, my stepbrother and I, we borrowed the first film from Blockbusters, um, or Blockbuster, and we watched it, and we had a really good time with it. We really enjoyed it. Um, and I know that later on, we watched Goldmember, because we didn't know what the second film was, or even that it was a trilogy. Um, and then f later down the line, we got around to the second film. Um, so that's the general history of how I got into the Austin Powers, uh, trilogy. Um, but then beyond that, we eventually, um, acquired online copies of the film. And I remember we would just watch them, you know, over and over again, even after he left home, um, 
when I was about 13, 14, I, I watched the trilogy just over and over again. Um, so in that span of time, I watched it a lot. And then it's been a long gap since seeing it and then rewatched the first one last night. So it was, yeah, coming back to something from my past. So you hadn't seen these in a very long time. Oh, yeah, I think less than half my lifetime ago. You know, I've turned into a weeb since I last saw it. I always got the impression that you were far more familiar with this series of movies than that. For some reason, I've always just assumed that you and I had like this similar kind of like, yeah, we know the Austin Powers movies pretty well, because we referenced them quite a bit in our podcasting experience together. Yeah, there are, there's definitely large gaps in my memories of certain things, but there are always little things. I'm like, oh yeah, that was a thing. And then obviously the the things that stick out the most are the things that I would reference, like my favourite line from the second film, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, I'm surprised, like, the third one, and by your description, it was already out. It wasn't, like, a new film, new, new film. Like, it wasn't in the cinema. Were you, like, did Austin Powers just fly by everyone in your family when it was around? Yeah, I suppose it did. I'm I'm surprised. So, uh, well, not really, because for people who don't listen to this podcast regularly, Bartek, in his younger years, and you could still argue currently, lives in a cultural vacuum in which things that are specifically iconic to our generation, Bartek is like, I don't know what that is. I've never heard of that. I didn't watch it, or I know a bit of it, but I don't know any of it, really. So... This is just a, another case of that. Like, I have seen every one of these in the cinema when they came out. That's my history. And so that is my relationship. I loved these movies growing up. I really loved the second one in particular, and I still do. I have a very firm attachment to them. I remember very vividly seeing the second one in the cinema and remembering that opening uh that cold open with the reveal of Vanessa and the musical number, the dance stuff and the title cards. And it was such a great time. And, and, you know, mini me and all of these things. I thought Mike Myers was this, you know, genius comedian guy. I'm like, who's this guy? He's just come out of nowhere with these Austin Powers movies. I remember owning the first Austin Powers on videotape, which is a, which is important because that is how Austin Powers, the franchise, became the franchise. It is is because it was a it was a flop. It was a failure uh, in the in the in when it was released, but it had a massive success when it was released on videotape and uh, DVDs and so on on the on the video market. And that is where the success came, and the interest was there enough for them to decide to make more movies. And then those next two movies were were bigger successes in the in the actual uh, theatrical releases of them. So this is also one of those success stories of a movie that didn't find its audience in the in the theater found its audience very quickly and very strongly in the home release market. And I always remember like I was a part of that and so was my family. We had these we we saw the you know we we watched them, we bought them. It was it was a it was a great time and I haven't watched the trilogy in maybe, like, five years, perhaps. I want to say I watched it when I lived in my former uh, share house with some of the uh, uh, people I lived with there, just because 
we can watch them. They're fun movies to watch with a group of people. And so it's been a little while since I've revisited International Man of Mystery. Uh, but I've always enjoyed it, but it wasn't my favorite. I would say it was my second favorite in the trilogy. Uh, so what was it like for you, Bartek, to come back to this one? Yeah, it was really pleasant. Um, obviously, a lot of things slipped my mind since last seeing it when I was probably 13, 14. Um, but a lot of it, you know, still stuck with me. The general plot progression, a lot of the gags, um, you know, being a bit more mature slash immature. Certain jokes made a bit more sense now. All the Seinfeld um, cast members that are randomly in this. <laughs> noticing, yeah, actors who I'm now slightly more familiar with, that too. Brian George. Brian, I thought that was him. I was like, is that him? Of course him? it was him. Of course know. it was him. We had the Soup paying- Nazi too. <laughs> the Soup Nazi was the one that I noticed, obviously, yeah. Um, Brian George, I was like looking in the credits, I'm like, oh, I couldn't see his name, but maybe I just missed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, he, he looks exactly like Brian George always does. <laughs> With that little mustache and that hair, and he's always in things. But, but you were saying about your experience with this, you were having a good time with it, and you know, things that you had forgotten have come back to the surface again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also, since it has been such a long time, I tried to, you know, cast aside my ideas of, you know, what this franchise is, my memories of them, and try to look at it as like a sort of blank slate to see like, okay, well, how is this all being established for someone who's never seen this before? How's it going to work? And you know what? Looking at it from that lens, I think the film is actually really well made. Yeah, yeah, I I understand that. I could not separate my nostalgia for this one, so (laughs) I will be gushing. There were so many lines, and not just lines, but line deliveries and moments in the soundtrack. As soon as they were happening, I was taken back to having watched this again and again and again and again and again as a child and growing up as a teenager and as a young adult. So, you know, all the little gag set pieces and all the little things in the background and it was a very joyous experience revisiting it for me i was smiling from ear to ear there was maybe a couple of things that i don't think work about this movie and uh, i think those are improved upon in the next film and those mainly come down to budgetary constraints uh, uh that i think affect this only in minute ways but overall i found the humor still made me laugh i found the humor still fun and refreshing i'm also uh as i think you are we are kind of at least i am naturally drawn into one of these movies in which the gim- the whole thing is a wacky comedy character like watch this comedian play this wacky character watch peter sellers play inspector clouseau watch mike myers play austin powers would you agree that you're similar with that kind of feeling about these type of movies which in a way don't exist much anymore yes i agree it's it's a lot of fun to see this well-defined character um just you know be played out um, and also, it's Mike Myers, who, you know, growing up, really liked his stuff. What about him did you like? And also, you say growing up, but like like you said, you, you didn't have as strong of an attachment to the Austin Powers franchise, which is his mm. big thing when we were growing up. Yeah, I guess it's just the few things that I happened to see him in, like the main ones being uh, the Wayne's World films. I love the Wayne World's films. I think we said it on a previous thing where I think of it as a duology, whereas most people have it separate. Um, 
Shrek to a smaller extent. Like, I like Shrek, but, you know, it, it's mostly kind of a mimetic kind of series. Um, and yeah, that probably would be it. But, um, I do remember that when we did, um, uh, how, so I married an axe murderer on the podcast, you know, years and years ago. I think I said in that episode that if I'd seen this as a kid, I think it would have been, you know, something that I would have held on to and watched a lot because, you know, it, it felt like another Mike Myers thing. He did his um, fat bastard and, uh, <laughs> Shrek voice in it. Yeah, that's right. He did. He did. Yeah, I, I guess it's just, um, when he I did, did the Austin getting... Powers thing in which he played multiple characters, which he didn't do in Wayne's World, right? He was only Wayne in Wayne's World. He didn't play multiple characters. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But definitely, yeah, when I got into Austin Powers and we had those, you know, downloaded copies and that I just watched over and over again, it was just something that I was obsessed with at the time. Mm. Yeah, I... uh yeah, I, you know, I just knew him as Austin Powers. Yeah, I had seen his other films. I had seen Wayne's World. I had seen Shrek. I had seen How so I Married an Axe Murderer and Cat in the Hat and all of that. But he was always Austin Powers to me. And I love Wayne's World as well. I love that first movie in particular. But to me, he's Austin Powers all of the time. And it's interesting that as an adult and as a child... I am not as familiar with the uh, the era that he's pastiching here and the type of character he is homaging and configuring. Like, I understand the James Bond element, but I am not as familiar, as I've talked about here on the pod, with the 60s era, that 60s, you know, British comedy and all of that era that obviously this is riffing from. But even as a child and even as an adult now... The iconography of the time that he is emulating here is so specific and so clear that even if you aren't familiar with it, you see it being done in this movie and you buy its authenticity. Like the musical cutaways of him like in a set with women and like him doing goofy stuff or like the random dance numbers or Burt Bacharach is always playing and the music, yeah, a lot of it's the music cues, a lot of it's the visual stuff as well. But like I as a kid didn't know those movies. I as an adult still am not familiar, but I completely buy that they nailed this 100%. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And the whole 60s aesthetic, you know, the funky font, the crazy colors, the fashion, it really, the film is kind of died in Austin's personality, because the whole thing about this film in particular is this kind of temporal fish out of water. He's a 60s guy who's been frozen up till 1997. He's come out, the world has changed, um, but his aesthetics, the things he likes and you know, all the cutaways and things like that, are very much him. So it's like he's still making his um, era known, even if it's something that's not known to everyone you know, who's younger than that era. And by the end, he is affected and changed by the current era. His teeth are fixed at the end, and they're shiny. And I was waiting for that moment, and then I remembered it's in the second one. <laughs> I'm going to have that a lot. In which I was waiting for him in that moment to realize his teeth are bad and look in the the mirror of the car and the mirror would shatter at his teeth, but that's in the second one because he travels back in time and it makes his teeth revert back to how they were. Mm-hmm. So, so that's in the second one. But yeah, I think um, coming back to it, I want to talk about things that didn't work 
because I think I have a lot more things that do work. What were the aspects of this movie that fell flat for you or weren't up to snuff or have aged? Oh, goodness. I have to, I have to think hard about that. Mm. Um, she's a man, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's no woman. She's a man, man. <laughs> um, well, well, the first time that happened in the sixties, you know, that was you know a gag. But then with the Nigel's mother thing, that was just like a callback, Basil, kind of funny thing. So, what did I call him? Nigel. Nigel. His Basil exposition. <laughs> Why was I thinking Nigel? Is there a Nigel in this franchise that I just... No, it's just a British name. <laughs> just a British name. Basil's mum, yep. Um, no, no, neither of those two things bothered me. I'm trying to think. Did something not work for me? Um, maybe yeah. you start. I'll have to keep thinking about it. My thing is, and again, this is influenced by the other two films, but visually this film doesn't look as stunningly James Bondy as it could. It does have that flat comedy look to it and the obvious these are sets look, especially the Dr. Evil lair and the underground and the caves and all of that. Again, I find it all charming and it has an obvious iconography of these Bond movies, but I think there's just something lacking in the budget to truly capture those Bond aesthetics, uh, whether it's lighting or the textures or the color palette. Something has always been lacking in this first one, and I think it is just the budget and the direction of how to do that, which, again, I think is completely solved in the in the second film. The second film looks exactly like a Roger Moore-era Bond thing visually, and I think that's always been one of my things with this movie, is I just... Visually, it's always kind of looked a little bit on the cheap side, especially the lighting is a little bit too, like, comedy lighting, like, like where it's bright and kind of flat. I Like, I always remember in my brain the inside of his jumbo jet being a lot more vibrant and a lot more, like, well-lit and stuff. But when you actually watch it, it is very much like, here's a flat shot with some flat lighting. And, you know, thankfully you have the costumes and the actors and all that kind of stuff to distract you from that. But I, I do think that is an element of the movie that I have always noticed, but I now understand it far more, what I had noticed in the past. What do you think about that? I definitely remember, and by the way, I also agree with you on the second film being my favourite one. Mm. Um, I definitely always remember the second film being the most colourful of the trilogy. Um, and you get the moon base. You get the moon base, yep. But even on on Earth, like just everything's so colourful. And I think mm. that has to do with it coming back to that 60s era. Um, so in terms of looking at it as a trilogy, I do kind of see this first film as, you know, kind of not capturing that level of vibrancy because it's kind of reserved for the second film, but then that's kind of assuming that they're holding back. So, yeah. Um, and definitely with Goldmember, the third one, I remember that one being a bit more, like, you know, aged kind of thing. I remember the characters looking a bit older in that one, um, kind of giving you this sense of, like, oh, time has passed. So, yeah, yeah the, the first one was this kind of middle ground. Um, it, it didn't really bother me, but like I said, I do appreciate that about the second film. I think another thing I have an issue with is um, pacing in terms of delivery of certain types of uh, gags or payoffs to comedy beats. Like, I feel like 
For instance, we get introduced to the idea of the fembots, and then it feels like we never see them again, and then they pop up again, and you're like, oh yeah, the fembots! It feels like they should have been more prevalent because of their introduction, and there's some things like that throughout the movie that I feel as well. Like, again, there are payoffs to these things, but something about the implementation of certain uh, uh, gags or, or plot things do feel like they're a little bit too spread out from one another and feel like they needed to utilize it. Like, like the fembots are iconic, yet when you watch this movie, they're barely in it. And I when did. they are, they're so far apart from one another. I did always remember that they only had two scenes, but mm-hmm. I I didn't remember when the first one happened, like when you get introduced to them. I thought it happened much earlier in the film, but I think it happened surprisingly late, and I was watching the film just wondering, like, oh, when's the, uh, when, when are the fanbots going to get introduced? Like, I remember that scene. It's like Frau's talking about them, you got the song playing, the guards get killed. Yeah. You know, it was odd. And I also forgot that uh, random task was taken out in, like, the last scene. Oh, I always remember that, because they used the um, the penis pump to get him. Yeah, I I should have remembered that they they fought him naked. Yeah, well, yeah, they were in their little robes. But, Mm. yeah, I... Like, there is that, and I think sometimes... And this is, again, the benefit of hindsight of the trilogy. There are some aspects, whether they be actors or characters or certain gags... I feel like they didn't know that they could utilize. Like, for instance, number two is great. Barely use him in the movie, though. They barely use him. And when they do, he's really good. But there's whole swaths of this movie in which he's just not around. Like, where is number two in sections of this movie? Yeah, it definitely feels like the henchmen overall get a bit more used in the later films. Yeah, they feel like they understand their comedic set-piece moments, which, again, you can see the wrinkle of and the echo of here. Like, there are characters like Scott or or, um, uh, Frau von Bissner or or, uh, what's the one that Will Ferrell plays again? Uh, Mustafa? Uh, Mustafa. Those people, they may not be in the movie throughout the whole entire thing. Like, one of them is killed very quickly, but they use their their comedic thing effectively in the movie where I feel like we were they, they fully exploited what you could do with them. But number two, for instance, or Lotta Vagina, or Random Task, or, uh, uh, or Basil himself, they feel like they didn't realize what great comedic potentials could be mined from those characters. And there are gags and moments of this film that I could also point to that are very similar to that. Like, And that, again, is the benefit of hindsight. Like, in the next film, they know what to exploit far more. They know what to lean into far more. But here, there were some of those things that I felt like they really missed an opportunity to, opportunity to add more of this in here. Yeah, that's all. That's all really good points. Because one thing that I um I mentioned earlier that I tried to watch this from like a blank slate as much as I could. Um, it was really interesting to see the kind of structure of the film where it really did feel like it was jumping between Austin Powers and Doctor Evil almost like equal screen time in a way. Like more so Doctor Evil in the first half, more so Austin in the second, um, and. Yeah, it really gave this sense that, like, oh, these films, uh, this film, sorry, is particularly focused on the Mike Meyer performances and, you know, what happens around him. And, uh, one of the things that really highlighted that for me was when, uh, Scotty was introduced. Um, 
be like, it Scott! was this. <laughs> and to be honest, like some of his his scenes were probably the things I laughed at the most in this. Oh viewing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just really interesting seeing this. Like, oh, okay, now they're introducing a you know father son neglecting long long term relationship kind of thing, <laughs> and just like seeing them hit all the tropes of that of like I hate you, dad, and like trying to you know, uh, get along with him, find even footing. But Dr. Evil's like evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um... <laughs> I, had them limp- I had them liquidated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and just seeing seeing the character, the, those Mike My performances develop through the things that happen around them, whereas, like we said, in later films, uh, the supporting cast get a lot more to do. I think an element, too, that I noticed, and again, this may be due to budgetary things, but also I think it was a dramatic choice, which is, I can't remember what it must have been like at the time, but did it feel like to you that they were trying to hide the fact that Mike Myers was playing more than one role? Because there's a large portion of the movie, and again, it's a villain thing, they're hiding the villain's face, but when they do reveal... Doctor Evil, it feel and it's quite a good chunk of time into the movie. It does feel like, oh, and it's Mike Myers. Like there was this element to me watching it where it felt like this was supposed to be like a good surprising reveal. And having seen the movie multiple times and seeing the sequels multiple times, it does feel like an element of the movie that's lacking is Mike Myers interacting with Mike Myers. That is true. We don't get to see that until... Well, we see it at the beginning for a little bit, and then not until probably the climax. But in the beginning, it's, you know, hidden of the face and certain types of shots and ADR. It's only towards the the back half of the film in which we really get to feel Dr. Evil and Austin Powers bantering back and forth, which, isn't that some of the best stuff in these movies? Is Yeah, now that you mentioned it's an it's an element that uh, we don't get too often in every film but then when it happens then yeah it's it's all really good stuff um i i didn't see it so much as uh hiding the fact that it's mike myers or trying to work around the fact that these two characters are in the same scene i mostly saw it as like a you know before we see dr evil's face he is mostly presented as this kind of menacing figure he's got this like air of mystery about he's him. a real villain we- yeah, and then once we do see him, which is like post getting unfrozen and like killing Mustafa and stuff like that, Mr. Bigglesworth, and Mr. Bigglesworth losing all his fur, that's the point of the film where like we start getting to see just how silly and you know kind of pathetic this guy is, and you know that opens up the comedy. Now that we see his face, we see what he's really like, and he's very funny. Yeah, I think, and I say budgetary thing because obviously a part of it is there's special effects needed to have the two of them interact properly or really good choreography of doubles. I did notice in the scene in which uh, he has Austin captured and uh, he has Elizabeth Hurley captured, Dr. Evil's talking to the UN and in the background you see Austin's clear, clearly the double, but it's like the background is out of focus, but you can clearly tell it's a double. Okay, but, I have to go check that out. I noticed that. Uh, yeah... I don't, like, you know, these, again, I think a lot of the criticisms I have of that is because the next two films improve upon those aspects. Whether you think the third one's better or not, which I don't, but I'm talking about things that that do get improved upon that are weaknesses here or lesser here. 
Yeah, once you know what the filmmakers uh, decided to improve upon, you start to see, you know, before those improvements came in. Like Basil. I forgot how little Basil's in this movie. Yeah, same. And how little they use him effectively. Like, he's here, he has his good moments, but the gags that come from Basil in this movie are far more the meta gag, right? Which... I imagine you got the meta gag of his last name is Exposition, and every time there needs to be Exposition, Basil's there, and Austin says, Hello, Exposition! And then he <laughs> proceeds to give it. Yep. <laughs> Which, that's great, but I feel like Michael York isn't used to his best abilities here, which we will see in the second film in particular. In the, forget the he's, second he's film. He's got my favourite line, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's shit, Austin. It is shit, Austin. <laughs> I loved young Basil with his wig and he's like, <laughs> he's like playing it like as a child where he's just like got this nervous energy where he's like constantly moving on the camera screen. It's so he's specific. like meeting Austin for the first time, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's yeah. like, hey, Austin. <laughs> he was very much a young scamp of the 60s. I loved it. I loved Basil. I love Michael York. It's great to see a B5 actor in the Austin Powers movie. Uh, yeah, just the one. Just the one of like 15, it feels like. So, yeah, um, let's talk about some aspects of the movie. Let's talk about the characters. Who's your favorite in this? Who, who do you get drawn to and get the laughs from? Ooh, I, I've always, I mean, this is really obvious, but I've always really loved Dr. Evil. <laughs> what about this character so great? Yeah, it's, <laughs> he, he's got this look to him where he looks menacing, but he, like, awkward things keep happening around him and he has to somehow keep up this pretense that he's in control, everything's, you know, going his way, um... And then when he realizes things are not going his way or like a mistake has been made, he has to somehow, you know, save face. And usually that involves him, you know, you know, throw me a freaking bone here. I've been frozen. I need info. Um, oh, and obviously just from there, obviously his voice. It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those voices. It's really fun to do an impression of. Yeah. You know, I love Dr. Evil. Of course I do. Uh, but I, I, I won't lie. I, Austin made me laugh a lot. Mm. I loved Austin and I love the situations Austin was put in. Like, I love Dr. Evil because he's got like these, again, these skewering jabs about the genre. Like, you know, it's the, he's, he's, he's the Bond villain and he's making jokes about being the v Bond villain. Like with Scott saying like, why didn't you just kill him? He's like, why would I want to do that, Scott? Like, I'll just assume that everything went to plan, you know, as villains do. Culminating and, in Scott, you just don't get it. Do yeah, you? Scott, you just... <laughs> You just don't you just don't get it, do you, Scott? <laughs> but I I really liked how Austin worked as a character, not just comedy wise, but like I actually forget until I rewatch the Austin Powers movies that Austin is actually a deep character. He's more than just the Yeah, baby, yeah, or mm -hmm. that stuff. He actually has arcs and he actually has nuances, but they know when to make those stupid, like the classic moment in which he's reflecting 
on the bed about how he how everything he wanted is gone now because he traveled into the future like like mrs kensington was never in his grasp and now she definitely isn't and then he ends a sentence with that train has sailed <laughs> like an idiot <laughs> that train has sailed idiot and I've i love never noticed that before <laughs> yeah yeah right you're laughing now that train has sailed <laughs> yeah like you said he's so deep and getting <laughs> you're bought into it. his acting there because yeah, it's like a genuinely exactly touching moment but if you listen to what he said it's stupid oh my God, and there's I've another that reflective moment in which she's sitting with him on the couch and they're looking at the videotape it's like i really forget that you've missed 30 years and listing off all of these things and the one thing he garnered was and liberace was gay who would have guessed that he was like a massive ladies man that always makes me laugh because it's true people really did think there was lots of people who did think that liberace it was a shock that liberace was gay even though it's clear in retrospect how gay liberace was but like i love the situations situations austin gets himself into like like I have referenced it on the podcast uh, many a times, and sometimes people don't even notice, like you, the poker scene. The poker scene. (laughs) The The blackjack scene. The blackjack scene, sorry. The blackjack scene in which he bets a five. (laughs) And he's like. He he stands on a five. He he stays on a five, and then they're like, I I suggest you hit, sir. I suggest you hit, sir. (laughs) He's like, no, I also like to live dangerously. You fucking idiot. You, I fucking love that scene. I love Austin. But yeah, Dr. Evil is the one people love so much because you know what he is straight off the bat. You know he's, you know, he's, he's Blofeld from, uh, from James Bond. But now he's like this weird European man with like this really detailed backstory of history. And they throw these weird gags at him of him trying to be like hip and cool and with it. But like he's a Bond villain. <laughs> like, Well, he you does can't... say, I'm cool. I'm hip. Yeah, after he does his little dance. Oh, stupid! But he he can't help but want to be a villain. Like one of my favorite laugh out, like one of my big laugh out loud moments was when Scott is doing the whole conversation about like what he wants to do with his life, and he's like, mm-hmm, "Right," and you see his hand hover over the button to press Scott into the thing. <laughs> Frau just hits his hand and gives him Scott like a wink, like, yeah. and that's how you like to live your life, do you? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, and then he just hovers his hand over. It's like, no, I love uh, Doctor Doctor Evil. He's. Did you have a favorite Doctor Evil gag or set piece with him? His dance was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like the Macarena. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure it was about that. I. Oh, he he has a he has a good amount. I love when he's planning. He's like, right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a laser, and we're going to get this laser and fire it into the what they call the ozone layer. And it's just like, oh, that already happened. Mm-hmm. That, that whole sequence. And I loved his reaction of, ah, screw, we'll do the same thing that we always do. Steal a nuclear warhead and take the world hostage, yeah? And then he gives that look like, mm, does that sound good to everyone? <laughs> so He's like feeling the room, but like He's very much. I made my decision, but does everyone like this? Is, there, is everyone on board for this? And also, like, would this still work? I know everything's changed, but is this still a good plan? 
It's funny how in the in the second film they do a lot of the same gags, like scenes like that, but they do it like the opposite in reverse like, because yeah, he's back like, in time, listing things from the future, future values. Like that's too much money. That's ridiculous. One hundred million dollars. <laughs> they start laughing, and he's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> yeah, I you know, it's interesting to think too that. We look at this character, these characters, and, you know, people do parodies of them, people like us do impressions of them, but I think not enough people give credit to how much dedication Mike Myers put into playing these characters, and I think that's what works about them. You can clearly tell that he is giving it his all with them. Mm. Like, he shaved his head to be... Dr. Evil. That's not a bold cap. That's him with a shaved head. Right? Isn't that interesting? professional, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, what do you think about the whole Mike Myers aspect of everything? Because, you know, people, he's, 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 you know, he's retreated from the world of entertainment for the most part. We've kind of discussed this in previous installments of Mike Myers related content, but let's touch upon it again. Like, what do you think about Mike Myers and what do you think about him as a performer? Yeah, I think he's always had that dedication. Like, he, he, even though he's you know a North American person, he he definitely has familiarity with these kind of uh, United Kingdom accents, like the English one, obviously the Scottish one. Realizes um, a lot of them in his roles, and I think there might have even been a point where I thought he might have been of those cultures because he just feels so you know natural using those accents. And clearly he enjoys using them. So, so yeah, he, he does feel almost, in a way, um, I guess multicultural in that sense. Multicultural yeah. Western. Yeah, he has this grasp on the, the UK sensibilities and the general European sensibilities, but is able to mould them for a general American audience. He's mm. very skilled. I... I think he's one of the better actors, comedic actors of his generation, because he was able to play very different style of characters with that flair that you know it's Mike Myers, because he always, he has his indulgences that he likes to do, like he always likes to play high energy characters. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see him do a Daniel Day-Lewis like performance you're not going to see him like be quiet and mild-mannered to the point in which you don't recognize it's him it's always going to be noticeable that it's him but like wayne and austin powers and shrek and and the cat in the hat they're all very different characters but they're all high energy characters like one of the things i love about wayne is wayne is like a surprisingly like bleak character like he has some really snarky lines that i often get sidelined out because i always think of austin austin powers and and shrek and all of these things as like a little bit more lighthearted. but wayne will have some like asides in wayne's world that you go jesus wayne <laughs> like the whole gun rack thing <laughs> now i'm tempted to pick wayne's world for my next episode. well is that a spooky month <laughs> Is that um, a spooky month pick? Is it is spooky when Ed O'Neill tells you about the soul? Oh my god, it would, be o- the body? it would be October when it's my next mm-hmm. pick. And you know what? I think my next pick's the 300th episode. Yeah, so you've got to make sure Paul Giamatti's in a horror movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> good luck. But Shit. yeah, I, 
I want to talk about a comment that I've always laughed about, which is everyone knows who listens to this that Austin Powers 2 was my sexual awakening because of Heather Graham. Loved Heather Graham when I was a child. I was like, this lady's attractive in more than one way that I can recognize. And I said this on the podcast one time when we had our good friend Saurab on. Mm-hmm. And Saurab said, just bluntly, oh, did you not see the first one? What about Elizabeth Hurley? And I responded, I was four. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't recognize as a four-year-old how hot she was in this movie. And I'm going to stake my claim here. She's a very attractive woman. But she's not that hot in this movie, especially when we've already done Bedazzled on this podcast. Mm. Thoughts? No, because she's that, very yeah, different in these two movies. She is, yeah. She's definitely got the devilish thing going on in Bedazzled. Mm. Far more of the openly sexual sexuality aspect, like the sexual like, uh, nature to her, like, she's very more, she's much more showing, you know, she's showing more flesh and curves and all of that, but, and she's playing that too, but here, I do appreciate that Elizabeth Hurley has to be the straight person in the movie, but I don't find her a killjoy, either, and she's not the Bond girl in the way that you would expect the Bond girl to usually be, like, the stereotypical idea of the Bond girl, which a lot of vagina is. Mm. Yeah, towards the end, like when the climax is happening, when Austin, you know, kills the fembots with his mojo, um, she is wearing that like kind of cat suit though. That her so, mum wore. Yeah, so it, it felt like they were kind of aesthetically trying to get there towards the end. She became an Avenger from the Avengers, like not the comic book one, but the the British TV show that we did the movie mm-hmm. of. That's what she became, rather than the Bond girl. Like, she had the big gun, and she had, like, black suit, and, like, the hair up. She became more of, like, the badass female Avenger rather than the... And again, that kind of ties into why there's an authenticity to Austin Powers. Because it isn't just... Austin Powers isn't just a Bond parody. It is an amalgamation of 1960s British cultural touchstones. And that is why I think the Austin Powers series has much more um, life to it than if it was just a beat-for-beat Bond parody. Hmm. Um, One aspect of it that I was kind of surprised by when I watched it last night, and considering that this is something we bring up a lot with romance films that we've done, um, does this film have the best uh, third-act breakup? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was really surprised by how much I bought it. It, yeah. it usually it's like oh it's it's an actual breakup where the characters are like separated and something you know effort needs to be done to get everything put back together. Um the characters like oh if I don't do anything, you know, it's over, we're already out of each other's lives. But in this one it felt like a very genuine like Elizabeth Hurley even says in the scene if you want this relationship to work, things are going to have to, you know, change. You have mm. to be committed. It's not a, this is over between us. This is a, look, I, in a way, she's like saying, you know, I'm giving you another chance, but in this very direct, uh, reprimanding way. And then Austin's next little montage of like him being depressed and sad mm. isn't that he's lost her or that, you know, everything's over. It's that he's genuinely realizing the, the the fact that his lifestyle isn't going to lead him to the happiness that he wants. And like, 
he's realizing, you know, the, the, this all this past stuff that I, I value, you know, no longer applies to this world. And yeah, by the time they're in another scene together, they're getting along just fine. And Austin's just always making an effort to remind her, like, look, you are the one I love. And I thought that was really great. They have chemistry for a start, yeah. too. Like, I really love the scene, the the iconic scene of, do I make you randy, baby? Do I make you horny? <laughs> what makes that work? There's two things very important to the Austin Powers character that makes these type of moments work. One, she is in on the joke. You know, she rejects it, of course, and she's like, this is gross and disgusting. But when she sits back on the thing, you see Elizabeth Hurley as Vanessa doing the typical, I am so grossed out right now. But you can tell she's amused by Austin. Like, she has little smiles and little chuckles to herself. But it's done in such a really naturalistic and honest way that it makes you endeared to Austin because, yes, he was being a gross pig, but also he was being openly honest. He was like, I want to fuck. Do you find me sexy? And, you know, she rebuffed him, but she was amused by it, and that opens up an avenue. And the second thing that's very important to the Austin Powers being very sexual character is... um, And people have really turned around on this aspect. Like, people growing up like we did, revisiting the movie didn't notice this when they were children or didn't take it like as it is which is austin is about consent he's about consent like he wants to fuck but only if it's consensual sex because there's that scene in which she's like fucking hammered and she's like let's kiss and he very seriously is like no can't do that it's not right you're drunk yeah, and he's act. He's he doesn't even seem like he's into the whole thing. He's like, no, no, we can't do it. It's it's you know clear cut. We can't do this. Yeah, and in another person's hands, that could have been fumbled. Like, could you imagine a Seth Rogen comedy doing that? <laughs> My mind did immediately jump to the one where he's a mall cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's different. That's a dark, fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah. But like, no, and I think. Those things make him being an openly sexual character not feel as skeevy because people do, the narratives do make it that the women find it amusing. And it's not like they're turned on, they find it amusing. And thus it makes him the butt of the joke. And the second thing is Austin Powers knows where the line is drawn, not just the character, but the film itself. They know where the line is drawn. And that's important to make him a likable protagonist to follow in your movie. And we're talking about this so heady and deep, but this is like a what people would think is just a dumb comedy in which Austin Powers says, yeah, baby, and all of that. But when you're making a comedy film that has an actual narrative with actual characters and has an actual three-act structure story... You actually do need to put in the effort to think of these considerations or else it all crumbles apart. Like, Austin Powers is actually an emotionally resonant character. Like, when he stands up to Dr. Evil at the end about how uh, (laughs) Dr. Evil very half-heartedly being like, "Mm, but peace failed, didn't it? Mm, Free love (laughs) failed. Austin has, like, a genuine opinion on the matter that we've seen him develop in the fucking movie. Yeah, I I completely forgot about his response to that whole, you know, we're not so evil, you and I, the thing you valued was evil. 
Like, I, I don't quite remember all the points in his phrasing, but it was essentially that, you know, the the spirit in which we decided to do the things we did, which are no longer acceptable, is still the same, and we will be able to express that in a different way that's now currently acceptable. But now we have responsibility over that, and that is groovy. Because before we were irresponsible and it led to lots of issues, but now we understand what responsibility is. A.K.A. Yeah, I, the character, understand the responsibility of my actions now. It's as simple as that. Like, I miss this. I miss this in comedies. Because, again, people may not even think about this, but this is... This is filmmaking. This is why this is a movie. This is why this isn't a Saturday Night Live sketch. This is why this is a feature film in which the story plays out. Because Austin goes on a journey of self-discovery and realization, even though he's still making quips and gags, and he's like saying, like, it's not mine, I swear, baby, and all of that. All of that. <laughs> he has a genuine character growth. He has a genuine character growth. And he has those emotional... Like, as a kid... I can't speak for you, but as a kid, my least favorite scenes in these movies were when the Burt Bacharach music plays and Austin Powers <laughs> is being sad. Now, as an adult, they're my favorite scenes in a lot of ways. They're the ones I get gripped by. You know? Like, it's it's so fucking good. I, it's... Mm, mm, yeah, it's... Yeah. I know that over the years you've mentioned that some people, you've heard some people either saying it to you or saying it just in general, um, thinking that this film would have aged poorly and you always thinking like, no, there's no way that's the case. Um, And me, I was like, oh, well, I want to check it out again someday to actually see for myself. And yeah, I'm actually surprised at how well it holds up. Like I knew I'd like it, but yeah, Mm. there's, there's a lot of really good things here. There's obviously stuff that's majorly aged, like some pop culture references, and the style of comedy is of its ilk of that era, but that doesn't mean like when we people say dated. People say dated and that it comes across as a nice way of saying in, a, in like not good for current day standards. Mm. That's what I get away when people say Austin Powers is dated. No, what they mean is, Austin, like, you know, what they mean is to say is, I don't like it currently because it doesn't match the standards of today's scene. But I got to then counter that by being like, what is the standards of today's modern comedy film scene? Because what was the last comedy film you saw in the cinema? Do you remember? Um... Last comedy film I saw in the That was just an out-and-out comedy. That isn't, like, a movie with comedic elements. Just comedy film. Can you remember? Um... Not not exactly, but when I think of the past decade, the only one that really comes to mind is, like, 22 Jump Street. I'm sure there's more. Oh, I guess Zoolander 2 was there. The World's End, perhaps? The World's End. That was, yeah, that was earlier last decade. That's a while ago. Yeah, that was like 2012, I think. Comedy films are dying in a lot of ways, like films like of this magnitude. Because yes, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery failed, but then it got so successful that it spawned a trilogy of movies like this. When was the last time we had a franchise like this of comedy films because they were made because people just wanted to have more of this character rather than they were trying to make a series of movies because that's what you do. 
uh, Medea. Well, those are different, though, aren't they? I haven't seen any of them, so I don't know. <laughs> those are different. You got me. The Medea film. I, I don't know if those are comedies at this point. They're lifestyles. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of merit here. I think I do miss the era. Like, Sasha Baron Cohen has work. You know, like, you know, he does the comedic character-driven movie, but he's a very different. He's a non-scripted for the most part, and, one, and the ones that are scripted are the weakest of his films. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I I don't know what to say about what else to say about the Austin Powers movie outside of like more of the comedic scenes that we really enjoyed. Like anything else other than that stuff you want to bring up here? Um, yeah, it's hard. It feels like we've covered everything. I was the soundtrack's surprised. iconic. I'll oh, for sure, for sure, yeah. I didn't know that um, until I was reading up just after my viewing yesterday that Austin Powers originated as just like a persona for the, the a band that Mike Myers is in. Yeah, isn't that the, cool? The Ming T. Like when when the song played in the credits, the BBC thing, and mm. then it was showing like, oh, these are all the songs that were in the films. Like this song's by Ming T, and I was like, oh, I thought Mike Myers would have just like written that for this film. I don't know what mm-hmm. this Ming T thing is. And then I realized, oh, okay, Austin Powers is older than this film. Yeah, and uh, the music, like the score, the Doctor Evil theme, iconic. The every time, yeah, iconic. They use it fifty million times, but it's iconic for a reason. Like I cannot stress enough. This movie has an iconic soundtrack. Like, there's an aspect I don't feel is dated from the movie. Like, there are no standout two 1990s song that feels out of place. Like, all of the songs that were from the 1990s feel so appropriate or, like, so on point. Like, the whole, you know, uh, I touch myself song that's playing when he's killing all the fembots. Appropriate. Mm-hmm. Of course it's appropriate. And... And there's so many other songs and so many other things that are that are just so on point. Like, I cannot stress enough that every time a song played, I was like, this is a fucking good song for this sequence. They knew how to spend their money in that regard. I'll say that. Definitely this film's songs have been minor earworms since I first watched the film. I want to like clarify. I sometimes, I sometimes still think about, like, you know, I touch myself playing in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or these boots are made for walking. Mm-hmm. But I want to clarify, I was right. Talking about my generation is in the second Austin Powers film. I asked that at the end of last episode, and I said, it feels like it's in an Austin Powers movie, and I looked it up, it's in the second film, which I thought it was. So I just want to say I was right, which we all kind of guessed. Bravo to me. Bravo to me. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, I guess. Congratulations. Can we talk about, I think... Something that is minorly lacking in the other two movies, and maybe this is just me being rose-tinted glasses here. Random task. No, but it's similar, which is, I think the first movie gave one-off characters, like one-and-done-scene characters, far more memorable things. Like, like there's so many, like, one-and-done little appearances in this movie, like Carrie Fisher as the head of the the um the the counseling group or uh all of those characters 
they're so memorable to me, and yet they're in, like, one scene. And I think this movie did a good job with that type of humour, of the one-and-done walk-on cameos, or or the one-and-done little moments that just linger in my brain like that. Like, the standout being Tom Arnold as the cowboy. <laughs> he, yeah, that scene was really great. Perfect. It's a perfect scene. Like, as, as a grown-up, I'm now seeing, like, the, the kind of dual nature of all the lines that happen in that scene and yeah it's really funny i've mentioned that scene so many times on the podcast and you always react to it like yeah 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 who does number two work for yeah 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 and now it's one of those scenes that you see it again and you're like oh yes yes you tom really, yeah, arnold <laughs> so good in that scene sorry you um you've really blown my mind i didn't know that was carrie fisher yeah that's carrie fisher yeah right oh this, this film is filled again. to the brim with random appearances random people showing up clint howard showing up at the very beginning uh, and uh so many people are in here and that will only be exemplified in the further films maybe to a, a noxious degree but here it was really good and i Really loved the who does number two work for scene. <laughs> I think I've used so many lines from that in my everyday life. <laughs> like, I you love- show that turd who's boss. Yeah, I've used that a lot. You show <laughs> that turd who's boss. Can I tell you a moment that always makes me chuckle? And I, I fucking lost it when I watched it last night, which is when mm. he says, oh, come on, a courtesy flush, please. And then there is a courtesy flush that is then proceeded to happen. Like, he asked for it, and he got it. He got it. How about a courtesy flush there? (laughs) And then he got it. (laughs) Yeah, he did. I I love the attention to detail for that. (laughs) It's so stupid, but I love it. Um, I guess another thing worth bringing up is the the two cuts. Yes. Is there anything? Yeah. Christian Slater is in my cut. Uh, He plays a security guard that stops them when they change into the scientist outfits or the workers' outfits. And he often uses hypnotism on him. And he's, like, hypnotizing him to do things, like go across the street and grab him some orange sherbet. And he's like, give me your gum. And he's like, here's some gum. And when they're running out of the final sequence of events where the base is blowing up, he walks up to them with a giant tub of orange sherbet. (laughs) Uh, and then the henchmen when they get killed the one that gets killed by being run over it cuts to his wife getting the call and then sitting down with the son like the stepson and she's like explaining to him how he got run over (laughs) with a steamroll and the kid's like crying about it he was like ever since dad left (laughs) the main ones I know are the two black comedy you know guys just got killed scenes and then the other big standout scene was, yeah, Rob Lowe, who would eventually go on to be young number two, um, was the mate of the guy who got killed by the mutated sea bass, the mm. ill-tempered mutated sea bass. And they are mutated sea bass. Rob Lowe, on the phone receiving the news, was pitch perfect because he plays it like dramatically, like he's crying and he's so sad about it. And then he walks over to his friends and he's just like, uh, Smitty, Smitty's, uh, he died. And they're like, what? Decapitated by some ill-tempered mutated sea bass. And everyone starts crying and they <laughs> chink a glass to him. And it's just so silly. And stuff like that is spread throughout the movie. And there's just little things, like little things that are extended, some scenes that are extended and nothing too major. But those are the big major hitting points. 
I want to tell you one thing. I mm. loved this movie so much that on my old computer when I grew up, and I don't know what happened. Is this era over now? Where you could change the noise your computer would make when it would log in and log out. You know, back in the day where your computer would make, if you had a Windows computer, say, yeah, it would you, have the customized sound effects. Do we not do that now? Is that over? Uh, I mean, I think you can do it. But it's not a thing that most people do anymore. I remember back in the day, people would really love to do that. I had that, and my one was the, the um, warm liquid goo phase <laughs> starting. <laughs> when we turned it on, and then warm liquid goo phase complete when we turned it off, because I loved how she said that. That's also a line that I really liked. It's it's not funny, but she it just it is in a way, you know. It's, not, maybe, it's one of those ones that you can't explain it. Maybe it's our early experience with ASMR. It's a really soft voice, kind of. And just warm liquid goo phase is a funny line in it itself. Is. Like, like warm what was liquid goo phase? There's a, the movie has a lot of those gags in which they have just very complicated words being thrown at you, and that's the gag because they say it's straight faced. Like the name of the 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 club at the beginning of the movie is like this ludicrously long title. It's just like the you know Electro Swingers Pussycat Club or whatever it is. Yeah, it yeah. Goes on and on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's all I have to say, majorly. Do we want to talk about Random Task? Do we want to bring him up? <laughs> and what we know now, um, the that, darkness that he, of life. <laughs> he was a very, very bad criminal, and he's been put away into prison. And he murdered his cellmate when in prison. Mm. That tinges things, because this movie has two people who um, either did commit murder or have been suspected of committing murder, which, do you know who the other person is? Um, Is it like Robert Wagner because mm-hmm. of his wife or something like that? Mm-hmm. The Natalie Wood, who mysteriously drowned on a boat. <laughs> um, and Christopher Walken was on that boat, and many people suspect that Christopher Walken was hired to kill her. Very weird situation where the best gag that comes out of gag, Jesus, people are dark. Where the gag, there's always been the gag of what, what wood doesn't float, Natalie. Um, <laughs> but um, right. that's that's it. Uh, I will say it is it, it is important that Robert Wagner was in this movie because it makes Rob Lowe being in the second one the extra benefit of being great. Because we had a whole movie with Robert Wagner's number two, and then we get a whole movie with the younger version of him, and you realize what a pitch perfect casting they made. And it gives me my favorite line, one of my favorite lines, which is number two, you're so young and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and Frau von Bishner, you're right. right. <laughs> <laughs> we could be here all day talking about all these great little Austin Powers moments and jokes and quips and. All of these little throwaway moments, but uh, I think that's uh, that should be about it. Uh, uh, we recommend it? Do we? Well, I mean, it's dated, so not really. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, no, I do recommend it. <laughs> it's Yeah, I recommend it. It's got uh, Adira from Babylon 5 in it, so I recommend it. As a lot of, a lot of vagina. Yes, I, I couldn't unsee that. <laughs> right? Welcome mm-hmm. to my world. Back in the day before Biotech watched Babylon 5, you would marvel at me being like, this person's in Babylon 5 in a one-episode role. And you'll be like, alright. 
Now you've watched Babylon 5, and now you're in that world. Welcome, buddy. Welcome to the party that is B5 actors showing up in things that you've seen before. <laughs> when she was in the spa with Austin, it was like she was cheating on Mondo. It was. How could she do that? Oh, well, she's... I won't spoil that. <laughs> it's not... It doesn't matter. I like that she got defeated in this movie by being punched. That's it. They're just like, shut up. And they just hit her. It works. It works. It works. Uh, that is it. Uh, we have the listening people's recommendation for the next episode, Bartek. Mm. And I was looking over the list and checking it twice. And I saw one that leapt out at me. And I was like, is this a new recommendation? It must be. That's why I my something on not too long ago. My eye is drawn to it. I think it is another one of your stepbrother's recommendations. Yes, he did recommend something. What was it? Desperado. Oh, that's right. He recommended Robert Desperado. Robert Rodriguez film starring Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek, and Steve Buscemi. So- <laughs> and Cheech Marin, everyone's favorite Lion King actor, Cheech Marin. Mm-hmm. So we'll be talking about Desperado next time on the pod. So people make sure to check that film out. And you have to be 18 to watch it because it's an R-rated movie. This is one of the first R-rated movies I watched in full. Ooh. My parents owned it. And uh, all I'll say is there's a moment of violence in the movie that I remember seeing being like, I wouldn't have been able to see this a month ago. That was my reaction. <laughs> I remember that as a kid. I was like this was a month earlier, I wouldn't have been able to see this moment of violence. Yeah, And but, for everyone's reference, this film is a sequel to a film called El Mariachi. Yeah, which I have seen. I have seen that movie, but it's also a, a, one of a trilogy of movies, because then the follow-up is Once Upon a Time in Mexico, in which that movie just fucking ruins everything. But that's a, Yeah, I never saw that one. That's a discussion for another day. A discussion for another podcast. Bartek, <laughs> where can people find us on the internet? <clears throat> you can find us on the internet at various places, such as Twitter, where Spit and Polish Presents, that's our name. Uh, we're also on Facebook under the same name, Spit and Polish Presents. Um, we upload our episodes to Podbean, and that gets distributed to YouTube and iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Plays, Spotify, and just all the sorts of places. If you just Google us, you'll probably find us. And if you want to contact us directly with, uh, what's your what's the thing? Thoughts, queries, concerns. I think that's the thing you say. Um, you can do that at spitandpolished at gmail dot com. Well, there we are. Thank you so much for all of that, Bartek. And thank you, listening people, for tuning in. Uh, make sure to keep tuning in, baby. Yeah, I don't. You know, I I, I just. You know, if this was another film, I would have walked in with us being like, here's the ending in which we do our wacky Austin Powers impressions. But like I said, I have such a such a sentimental and nostalgic attachment to it. Like, I don't I don't feel like I should sully the good name of Austin Powers by doing like a like a wacky impression of Austin for an end gag joke. All I'll say, at least, is that I am looking forward to whenever we cover the second film. That's all I'll say. Do you want to end it by doing a really shitty impression of Austin Powers, maybe? Yeah, sure, you go ahead. Okay. Well, baby, psychedelic. (laughs) 
sounded like you had an orange in your mouth while you were doing it. I was very inspired by Marlon Brando, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, fuck, you, you, you sidebar, you, you got me there. I, I, can I outdo that? It's like the only way to outdo it is to do it with the wrong accent. Like, <laughs> yeah, baby, yeah. Jamaican Austin Powers. 